0: You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. How are we doing this morning? Bet you didn't expect to see me here. All right. Yes, we did. Okay, I told you earlier. Fair enough. Uh, Well, my name is Jimmy, and uh, I'm really excited that I get to uh, bring God's Word before us uh, this morning. Uh, For those of you who don't know... um, Let's see, it was February, so last month I came on staff full-time here at Stonegate as the worship director, coming alongside uh, folks like Kevin and Valentine who've done such a, just a great job with this uh, worship department, and just coming along with them to help us continue to move uh, the ball down the court, just with all the things that we're anxious to do from the stage up here, which is, which is have good, gospel-soaked, theologically rich truths sung over us that, that are just Bible-saturated, that, that are musical styles that don't allow anyone to just have to hang their uh, culture up at the door when they come in. We're trying for all these things in our worship ministry, and man, I'm just so excited to be a part of uh, what God's doing here. So um, uh, it, it, in light of that, uh, we are, actually I have a quick announcement about that. We are having band auditions for the worship team uh, coming up. So uh, we have uh, now band, not vocalists. We have about 400,000 vocalists uh, on the team right now. So pray for us. But uh, we uh, need some, some uh, band members. So if you're gifted at uh, drums or playing bass or electric guitar or keys or B3 or bassoon, um, not bassoon, but everything... Besides bassoon, we would love uh, to have you audition. Uh, and in fact, that's, uh, we, I think we have my email um, up there on the screen. So you can email me there uh, if you're interested, and we'll follow up with you and go from there. So be thinking about it. If that's on your radar, if that's a skill set you have, we would love uh, to exploit you for our church. Fantastic. Rodney, don't fire me. Okay. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Okay. Uh, an, another uh, picture for you. <clears throat> We're going to start the sermon, shall we? If you're, uh, <laughs> you're so confused right now. If, <laughs> if you're under 30 in the room, uh, there's a good chance you probably don't know who this guy is. Uh, if you are over 30 in the room, uh, you, you may have some sort of sense of who this guy is. Uh, but if you're over 30 in the room and you've ever put money in the stock market, you know exactly who this guy is, right? Because this guy is Bernie Madoff. And Bernie made off with all your money. Uh, in 2009, he pled guilty to uh, cheating uh, his clients out of some $65 billion. $65 billion. It is, to date, the largest <clears throat> single act of financial fraud in U.S. history. Right? And uh, his his scheme wasn't incredibly brilliant, what, but how it went down was this. Bernie was just this incredibly likable guy who made an incredibly appealing offer to his clients. That's how it worked, right? And, and the offer was this. You give me your money. I'm gonna take that money. I'm gonna invest it in things for you, and I'm gonna guarantee you a steady rate of return on your investment no matter what the market does, right? So stock market goes way high one month. Bernie's just slow and steady moving up. If stock market goes way down and crashes, somehow Bernie's still going up. At least that's what his clients thought. What was actually happening, uh, of course, is he was just taking the money and putting it in his bank account and then giving them false reports about what was happening on paper to the tune of $65 billion. And he's in prison, (laughs) and he should be. This this guy right here, this face is the face of what we would... uh, you, the term in our culture would be a con man, right? Which comes from the term confidence man. Now, what is a confidence man? Well, a confidence man is a person who gets people to place their confidence in them and then robs them of all they have. That's what a confidence man does, and that's what Bernie Madoff did for his clients. And the people who decided to put their confidence in Bernie, uh, it wasn't long before their confidence in him evaporated Uh, Because they found that they put their trust in something that promised them riches, but instead led them to ruin. That's what happened with them. Now, why am I telling you this? Um, Well, that's money, right? But what we're talking about this morning is infinitely bigger than money. What we're talking about this morning is eternity. We're talking about heaven and hell and where you're headed, and salvation, and the biggest topics in life, we're talking about that. And when it comes to the biggest things in life, it's important for you to realize that we are all looking to something, putting our confidence in something that's giving us a sense of security when we think down the road to our death, to eternity, to heaven and hell. Right? All of us are doing that. We have thoughts that, that whatever they are, we cling to them, and they are the things that give us good sleep at night. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to sleep. And so we cling to those things when we think about eternity. And there's really, in the final estimation, only a couple things that we could be clinging to when we're thinking about this. We can either be putting our confidence, building our confidence around one of two things, our righteousness or Christ's. Now, when I say righteousness, that's kind of like a Christian buzzword, like it it, it kind of means everything and nothing, right? It's like, what, what are you talking about when you say that word? So let me just put some words around that word for you to give a sense of like the meaning of the word. So when you think righteousness, maybe it's equally as appropriate for you to think words like resume, um, track record, accomplishments, worthiness, the things that give you your sense of worth, right? That's your righteousness. And, uh, and Paul, in this text that uh, Valentine read earlier, he's about to present those two camps for us, those two systems of where we place our confidence. He's about to, to lay them out for us in this text. And I want you to listen for a couple things as we do this. I want you to listen for what he identifies as those two camps. And, and then I also want you to have your ears perked for how he's framing the issue for us. Well, How he wants us to feel about those two systems. Because he's going to use language that's going to evoke some thoughts and feelings in us when he does that. So let me read for you the passage again. And I just want us to be thinking about those two things. So what those two camps, what those two systems are, and then how he's meaning to convey them. What he wants us to feel about those two camps. Here we go. Look at the text. uh, Philippians 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers. Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more In the flesh, he says it three times in our text, and confidence in Christ. Now, confidence in the flesh, again, flesh is one of those words, right? Christianese, so let me give you a category for words to put around that. Um, When you think flesh, you could replace that same word with self, right? Your achievements, um, self-reliance, like all of those would be appropriate when you're thinking about um, what it means to place your confidence in your flesh. Self would be a great word to replace that with. But what's fascinating here, to me anyways, is how Paul wants us to feel about these two camps. right? He uses some language here that's fascinating to me. Uh, let's look at what he says here for a second. So go back to verse 2. Um, here's what he comes out the gate saying. So, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Look at those words that he uses there: dogs, evildoers, flesh mutilators. It's like a Saul movie or something, right? It's like, what am I reading? Like, what do these guys do? Are they axe murderers? I don't know what's happening. Like, who are these people? And wh- the irony of this moment. In your Bible, is there are none of those things that you're thinking about when you think of, I don't know, a flesh mutilator. You're not, you're, you're not thinking about the, the type of people he's talking about because the people he's talking about are the people who are called the Judaizers. And the Judaizers are doing some really moral stuff. Here's what they're doing. They're coming to the, uh, the Gentiles who are wanting to become Christians, and they're simply saying... Look, I think it's great that you want to be a Christian. I just want you to also put on the Jewishness that, that uh, we have, put that on first, and then move toward Christ. And if you can get sort of the Jewish accoutrements going for you, things like keeping to the ceremonial law and the moral law, things like circumcision, they bring it up here, right? That, the outward display of, of an inside commitment to this camp of people, the Israelites and to Yahweh, um, then, then you're good, right? That's why they bring up circumcision, by the way, which unfortunately for a 35-year-old Gentile is probably really bad news that this is a requirement, but that's neither here nor there. Um, What is important for you to note is that's what the Judaizers are doing. They're simply saying you just need a little bit more morality, a little bit more ceremony on you, and then you move to Christ, and that's the full package. That's what it really means to be a Christian. And that idea that you would add anything to faith alone in Christ in order to be saved, that idea disgusted Paul so much that he calls those folks, the Judaizers, the moral folks, the religious folks, the nice folks, he calls them dogs and evildoers. The great irony of life is that in God's assessment, the greatest villains in the end won't be the prostitutes or the murderers or the rapists. You know who they'll be? The nice people. The moral people. Does that shock you? Is that hard to believe? It feels hard to believe. It feels so counterintuitive to what we grew up in like southern church world believing. But let's just, let's just zoom in on some texts that highlight this. Let's, let's look at the life of Jesus for just a second. Okay? So think about Jesus in the Gospels. Who were the people that Jesus had the harshest words for, the hardest words for, the words that, man, that is, that's a sideways pill to swallow. Who, who was he talking to in those moments? Was it, um, was it the woman caught in the act of adultery? Right, like literally caught in the act of adultery, brought before Jesus, laying there before him. Was it her? Well, well no, it wasn't her, right? He kneels down and he says, nobody else condemns you, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Was it, uh, was it Barabbas, the insurrectionist, like rising up against Rome? Like we, we all know, even in Jesus' teaching, you don't do that. He rose up against uh, Rome. He's, he's uh, uh, a bad guy to the state. He's in prison, right, about to go on a cross. It wasn't Barabbas. Jesus actually took Barabbas' cross. So who was it? It was the Pharisee. It was the religious leaders, it was the pastors, it was the the Bible teachers, it was the nice people. Listen to what Jesus has to say about them in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. I think back to Matthew 7, right, the end of the Sermon on the Mount. In, in my opinion, it's one of the heaviest, hardest-to-read moments in the Bible for me. And it's that moment where Jesus is, is sort of laying out the scenario of there's going to be folks on that day that are going to come to him and present themselves to him, and he's going to turn them away. You remember that moment? Who were those people? How, do, how does the text describe them? Were they Were they the pimps? Like... They're like, hey, Jesus, we want to get in. He's like, I don't let pimps into heaven, man. I'm sorry. Like, was it that camp of people? Look at what the text says. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You need to hear me on this. Um, this is probably the hardest thing I will ever say from a stage. And way to go, I say it in my first sermon. Uh, but I hope that this lands on you like a ton of bricks, because it should. Hell is filled with nice people. Filled. For every murderer in hell, there will be a soccer market For every every prostitute in hell, there will be a virgin. For every atheist in hell, there will be a churchgoer. J.C. Ryle puts it like this, Of all the mischievous delusions that keep men out of heaven, of all the soul-destroying snares that Satan employs to oppose Christ's gospel, there is none we find so dangerous, none so successful as self-righteousness. Until your paradigm shifts for what hell is really like, you will never enter heaven because you have to know that it's not your record that's getting you in. That has to be established. In God's economy, this is so fascinating. The ones we call saints, God looks at them and he calls them monsters and evildoers, dogs. So... You have to be thinking at this point, or at least asking yourself the question, so who gets in, right? If the, if the bad guys don't get in and the good guys don't get in, I'm hosed, right? There's no hope for me. Who, this the, I'm somewhere on that spectrum. Who gets in? Who are the saints of God? Look at the next verse, verse 3. For we are the circumcision the set-apart ones, right? Who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in who? Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. You want to know who the people of God are? The people of God are those of us who put no confidence in our flesh. In our self, in our abilities, in our strengths, in our talents, in our giftings. But we cast all of our confidence on the person and the work of Jesus. Your flesh will fail you like a con man every time. Every time. And before we just keep plowing through this text, I just want to camp on self-righteousness for a second and highlight three ways that self-righteousness cons us. Okay, way number one, as I see it from the text, self-righteousness robs us of joy. Self-righteousness robs us of joy. How does it rob us of joy? Well, because it can be threatened. I I was on a, a plane flying to a show maybe a year ago and I uh, was sitting next to a young guy, like 23 years old, and uh, we were talking, and uh, we had some stuff in common. We were both musicians. He was a songwriter and all that, and so we had that in common, and we kind of got into deeper things, and and I got a chance to tell him that I was also a Christian and, and what that meant for me. It was unpacking some of that for me. He was asking me, well, what does that mean? And as I was telling him what that means, I said something to the effect of, well, uh, I'm a Christian, so you know, I have sort of find my worth and my value uh, caught up in the person a, of Christ. And it was so interesting, his reply to me. He, he uh, looks at me, he goes, hey, that's that's so interesting. We have something else in common, because I, I do that too. Like, that's how I feel about songwriting. And I, I just looked at him, and I, I said, uh, can I ask you a question? He said, yeah. I said, well, what happens tomorrow when you wake up with writer's block? And he just paused for like 10 seconds, and he just said, that's a good point. That's a good point. If your sense of worth and value is founded on any other object other than Christ, it can and will be undercut, and it will dissolve. And your sense of confidence and worth and value and righteousness will dissolve with it. It'll dissolve with it. If, you, if you're a parent in the room, maybe you put a lot of confidence in your ability to parent well. Maybe, like, for you, that's your thing, right? And so, like, you're feeding them all the right foods, and they're just covered in essential oils, and, you know, they, uh, <laughs> it's classical conversations, homeschooling for you, and you're going for it, man. It's just home run, right? Like, that's awesome, and you probably are doing a great job at it. I'm not saying any of that's bad. What I'm saying is what happens when your daughter comes home at 16 and tells you that she got pregnant from a guy she met? What happens in that moment to your joy? It evaporates. It evaporates. Or maybe you're killing it in your job, right? and you're moving up the ladder and you're executing well and your boss is is looking at you and giving you the thumbs up and then one day you get cut out of the blue, right? One day it's a layoff and then maybe it's a hard economy and you can't seem to find a job. And that job gave you all your sense of worth and now that job has dissolved and what happens to your sense of worth? Well, it dissolves. Your joy flies away because it's not founded on anything sturdier than you. Second way that self righteousness robs us, it robs us of love for others. When, when self righteousness is your mode of operation, other people become your competition. Nobody said it better than Jesus in Luke 18. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. That's the group of people he's talking to, and here's the parable. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Others become our competition. Did you hear the the language of the Pharisees' prayer? It was all horizontal. I thank you that what? I'm not like other men, extortioners, right? All of these folks, and even like this tax collector. That tax collector for him was, was an object to measure his worth by. And so there's no love for this man anymore, there's no care for his soul. There's no consideration that he's made in the image of God. It's just, how can I be above him and not below him? I deal with this stuff all the time. I really do like wrestle with finding my worth in my walk with God because God's given me some really great giftings. Like it's pretty easy for me to memorize scripture, for instance, right? And so those, those moments come really naturally, naturally for me. They get in my head and they stay there, right? Like I'm a, I'm, uh, I, 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 i I I'm really consistent in my devotional life. My hardest moment in my devotional life is that I actually, and I'm not lying, I spend too much time reading my Bible, and I'm like, oh, I don't have any time for other things in the day. That's my issue, right, in my quiet times. Uh, I I share the gospel with people. That's pretty easy for me. Like, it's not not like a big burden for me to, to... to tell the gospel story, to open up my life to people, all that. I disciple guys, right? I bring them in and we, I teach them the word and they, they grow in their knowledge of God and all those things for me. Man, I so often rest my value on that. And then I met Kelly Needham. And my life was ruined. Because Kelly is unbelievable at all of those things, right? Like, I think I'm doing okay and then I look at her and I'm like, oh my gosh, how... Like, I'm coming home, and you know, sit down, watch some Netflix, eating, eating some bonbons. She's bringing six girls into the house, discipling them all night, exegeting Leviticus with them. Like, what's happening? I'm watching Ace of Cakes. Like, I'm the worst person in the world right now. My wife is killing it, like always. And you know what it does? You know what it produces in me? Loathing. I don't want to see her success. I, I don't want to see the Holy Spirit working good things in her heart. You know what I want to see? Her not tell me any more about that. Just keep that to yourself. I stop celebrating with her and I stopped celebrating her and, I, and I'm celebrating me. And last of the three, self-righteousness. And this is the worst. This is by far the worst one. Self-righteousness robs God of glory. This is the worst crime of all because you see, you celebrate whatever you consider to be your rescuer. And if your rescuer is you, guess who you're going to be celebrating? You all day. And this is the anti gospel. It's, it's anti-everything the word has to say. I remember one of the first verses I memorized in, in scripture was Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works so that what? No man may boast. God is after us boasting, but he wants us boasting in the right things. And when you are your Messiah, you boast in your Messiah and you will celebrate you all day. like. One of the saddest things for me uh, is talking to folks from a different faith and and getting to share the gospel with them and kind of hearing their worldview. Like, I always want to push back on them because, you know, at at the end of the day, when they stand before God in whatever their heaven is, the best thing they're going to have to say is, I did it. That's the best thing that you have in any religion is, I made it. I did it. And Christianity makes you cover your mouth before God on that day and just whisper, it was grace. It was grace. It robs us of joy. It robs us of love for others. And it robs God of glory. And Paul knows all this, right? He knows the pitfalls of self-righteousness, but he's also a smart guy and he knows that there's a bunch of knuckleheads out there like you and me who somehow think that maybe we're the exception to the rule, that maybe this doesn't apply to us. That I, I get it. Like righteousness, self-righteousness doesn't work, but like I actually am hitting home runs, Paul. You got to hear me. He's presuming that because he's plowing forward with his argument and, and it is just punishing. I, I think of, uh, I moved up here from Houston. Uh, about five years ago, and in Houston, there was like this weird culture thing that I saw happen. Uh, there, there's this group of guys that, that would always meet in this one parking lot, and they had, uh, they bought up a bunch of like 1992 Honda Civics, right, and they soup them up, and they put like these big dumb mufflers on them, and it sounds like the car's farting as it goes down the road, and And, you know, they got the subwoofers in the trunk, and they do stuff under the hood. And, like, they got these little race cars, right? And they all meet together in the Walmart parking lot at 11 p.m., you know, on a Friday night. Um, And uh, they occasionally go up to the stoplights, and they race each other. And it's kind of cute because they look like Hot Wheels cars, but it's also kind of pathetic because nobody's going over 50 miles an hour. And you're like, how is this cool? Like, Like, Paul is about to pull up to them at that stoplight in a Ferrari and ask them if they want to race. That's what this moment in the text is. He's about to show them all up. He's about to say, you think you got game? Here we go. Listen to the text. For we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, it was um, probably six or seven years ago now that uh, we were living down in Houston, and I was traveling a lot, playing shows, and I really wanted to give my wife a sense of, like, calm and security as I was leaving town. But instead of getting an alarm system, which any sane man might do, I bought her a German shepherd. <laughs> you shouldn't do that, first off. Uh, but I did. And I, uh, I'm kind of this go big or go home sort of guy in, in, in moments like those. And I'm like, if I'm going to get a dog, I'm going to get the the... Just the most awesome dog. I'm going to get a German Shepherd. And I'm not just going to get a German Shepherd. I'm, I'm going to get the greatest Shepherd that's ever been made. And so I went to a show kennel. What is a show kennel? I'm glad you asked. A show kennel is where they breed show shepherds. What is a show shepherd? Well, a show shepherd is a shepherd that looks so good, that struts so well, that I pay $1500 for it. <laughs> I'm not lying when I say apart from my mortgage, that was the second most expensive thing I've bought in our marriage. It was a dog, people. Pray for me. This is really dysfunctional. But but it was amazing. I went there and I started learning about this dog and like this dog had had like a lineage like the her parents were like Oscar winners. It was the craziest thing that they gave. It was so significant, like her, her pedigree, that they actually documented it and gave it to me on paper. I think we have an image of it here. This is the actual pedigree of my dog. I know more about my dog's family history than I know about my family history. That is weird, okay? And that's That's not my dog. That's her dad up there. And he's more decorated than a four-star general. And so I just thought, I got to get this dog. It's going to be the greatest thing ever. What made the dog so impressive, what made her so expensive, is where she came from. She had an amazing pedigree that gave her her value, right? And that's what Paul's doing in this moment. He's showing us his pedigree. Paul came with papers, right? He's, He's bragging about what he's done and who he is and where he came from. Look at what he says in verse 5. Here's his list. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now, I don't necessarily come out the gate bragging about that first one. uh, But for Paul, circumcision was a big deal, right? It mattered to Paul because for Paul, that meant that not only was he distinct, like set apart in in the family of the Israelites right? But for Paul, this is almost him saying, look, I was keeping the law even before I could keep the law. I was eight days old, baby. I was hitting home runs. Look at me. And then it goes on. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Paul could prove his lineage, which is significant because, you know, 722, the Assyrians uh, conquered uh, Israel. In 586, uh, the Babylonians uh, took Judah away and the the whole Israelite camp just got really muddled up and it became really difficult for you to trace your line back to people, right? It became hard for you to say, I'm of Joseph or I'm of so-and-so. But Paul said, I could trace it. I'm a Benjaminite, right? I, I know where I came from. He's showing us his papers right here. Then he goes on. As to the law, a Pharisee. So he wasn't just a Jew, and he wasn't just a Jew who knew his lineage, he was a teacher of the Jews. He was the John Piper of the Jews. And not only that, but Acts 22.3 says that he was educated as a Pharisee under Gamaliel and one of the strictest sects of the Pharisees. So it's like, think about it like this. Paul went to like Harvard, right? Paul went to Harvard, and he even had that professor, that like bio professor that we've all had, that flunked like 98% of the class in that first semester, right? And you're like, oh my gosh, how am I going to show my parents this, right? Gamaliel was that professor, and Harvard was the school of Pharisees that he was in. And Paul took the class, and guess who was in the 2% that passed? Our boy, right? That's what he's saying. He's saying, I passed. I came out of the hardest working crew, I've got this thing down. And then he he saves his biggest credentials for last. Look at this. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. So he had skin in the game. He was fighting for this thing. He wasn't gonna let any infidel rob Yahweh of glory. And then he drops this bomb on us. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Those are big words. And now look, I, I know uh, that nobody can perfectly keep the law on a heart level, right? And I I know that Paul knows this because his previous credential was, I went around trying to kill Christians and Paul knows that's a sin. So he's not saying on a heart level, I was blameless, but he is saying, when I look at the Torah, when I look at what was asked of me in the ceremonial moral law, you know what? I was doing it. I was doing it. I was executing on what God was asking of me. We do this, right? We make these lists. We all make resumes. Uh, For you, maybe, maybe it's that you got saved at a young age, and then you've just been pretty faithfully walking with God ever since. Maybe you entered uh, into marriage chaste, right? Maybe you came in as a virgin and that's like a really big deal to you and that's sort of a badge that you wear. Maybe maybe for you, you're the, the most honest guy at your job. You work in like a secular context and, and those folks are jokers, man. They're just doing all sorts of bad stuff, but not you because you're a Christian and, and you know the law of God and you're obeying it, even though it's maybe costing you some opportunities for upward mobility. Um, Maybe you share the gospel with people. Maybe that's your thing, which counts double in the kingdom, by the way. I don't know if you know that, but if you share the gospel, it's big time, right? Um, I don't know what it is for you, but I think it's important for you to allow yourself to feel threatened by Paul's list. You should feel threatened by this. This is in your Bible to make you nervous. Why should it make you nervous? Because not only does Paul's resume make yours look like a kid's coloring book, but This Paul, who's just killing it, this Paul is about to have a massive change of heart. Take a look at what he says next. Verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul is saying here that even with all of his badges, even with all of his medals of honor, one look at Christ was enough to cast it all off. Verse eight, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now, when I was in college, I was 260 pounds, believe it or not. And I met Kelly in college. And six months later, I was 190 pounds, and I didn't diet, and I didn't work out, and folks, you know, were asking me and still do, how did that happen? Like, that seems really, like, dramatic to have just happened on its own, and what I always tell them is this, I saw something better than the thing I was chasing, and I went and chased that and it's amazing what that will do for you. Putting something more desirable in front of you than the thing you desire most will radically change you. Like, I started to get to know her, and I thought, this girl's amazing, and she's smoking hot, and she's a Christian, and she like love's god and people and what's happening and she's talking to me now and I just asked her out and she said yes and I actually went to her house the day after I asked her out because I wasn't convinced that she meant yes and so I asked her did you mean yes and she said yes and I said that's fantastic <laughs> that really happened and the more i set my gaze on her the less my appetite for other things grew right? It, dim- it diminished. It diminished, and it went away. And all of a sudden, I wasn't as interested in a peanut butter tortilla at 3 a.m. I was interested in this girl. Peanut butter tortillas are fantastic, by the way. <laughs> still, they're still good. They're still good. <laughs> There's no fleeing from, listen, from one pleasure without also fleeing to a greater pleasure. When we find ourselves before something more desirable than what we're currently chasing, we'll let go of our former love and we'll find it repulsive by comparison. We would be fools not to trade crumbs for a banquet. And when Paul turned his gaze to Christ, he realized all he had in the end were crumbs and there was this banquet of this glorious God and Savior right in front of him. Listen to verse 9, because verse 9 puts a theological framework around it a little bit, and I've found it to be just, what a treasure verse for me. Um, so it comes right in the middle of a sentence, but uh, the sentence begins, in order that I may gain Christ and, verse 9, be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. God in Christ is offering you a more sturdy and stable and effective and God-pleasing righteousness. Not a righteousness that comes from you being good, but a righteousness that comes from him being good on your behalf. And when we acknowledge that, it changes us forever. And I just hope that that's really good news for somebody in here this morning, that you've just been striving Right? And working so hard to build up your credentials. I hope that you would turn to him this morning and gaze. What is, what's the step here? What's, what's the action step? He's, he's laid it out. He's talked about what it has meant for him, right? That he counts it all as rubbish. What's the application? Well, I think there's two obvious glaring things here. And the first is this In light of this, we need to repent of our resume. Now notice I didn't say we need to repent of our sin. Because we're in Dallas in a church in the south and everybody knows that you repent of your sin, right? I don't have to tell you if you killed someone you should probably apologize for it, right? And then go to jail. But what we have a much harder time understanding is that we need to repent of the good that we've produced in our life, if that good has been done in a way to secure for ourselves God's favor. One of my favorite quotes of all time is by a guy named Tim Keller. He says this, irreligious people repent of nothing. Religious people repent of their sins, but Christians repent of their righteousness. This might be the most counterintuitive thing you will do in your whole life. It feels weird, right? Like you're telling me I need to feel sorry for like caring for people and like feeding the homeless and sharing the gospel. And I'm not saying those things are bad. I'm just saying that they're bad saviors. You see the difference? The actions are great, but if they're done as the root of your salvation and not the fruit of your salvation, they will ruin you and con you out of joy. How, how do we do this? How do we repent of our resume? Well, it, if you're doing this, it's probably gonna look like a couple things in your life. It's gonna look like you're gonna stop comforting yourself with your own track record, right? That that when your head hits the pillow at night, the, the way that you'll know, am I repenting of my resume, is you won't rush to thoughts about what you did in the day that's gonna give you your sense of worth or that's gonna make you feel better about how God feels toward you. You're gonna rush to thoughts of Christ. Another way you're gonna know that, that you've done this is if you stop correcting your sin with good deeds. Anybody else do this? I do this all the time. So I, I, uh, if I'm fasting, like on a day, you better believe the day before I was stuffing my face, right? And, and then at some point at like 9 p.m., I'm like, man, I just really feel like God's calling me to fast tomorrow. You know, it's like, no, he's not. No, you just feel really bad. Right, And you want to fit into your pants a little better and you want to make sure that, that God knows that you're sorry for what you did and so you make up for it. Man, we do that all the time with so many things. Like, that was bad. But this week, man, I'm just going to go for it. I'm going to try really hard. You know, I'm going to share the gospel with 15 people this week. Here we go. Right, We do that. That is a sign that we have not repented of our resume. That's a sign that we're leaning on it. The last thing we do after repenting of our resume Number two is we look to Christ. We look to Christ. Paul's gaze at Jesus changed everything for him. He dropped what he was clinging to for significance and he grabbed onto the better object. The best thing you could do today is look to him and find him to be lovely. Find him to be sturdy. Find his deeds to be perfect. You know, a lot of folks at this point in a sermon, they tend to check out, right? Because this is like gospel presentation moment, right? And uh, if that's you, this is probably more for you than for anybody. Um, you just need to hear me on this. I, if you are placing your hope in your resume and not in Christ on your behalf, you will It's the anti-gospel. It's anti-Christianity, but it is Southern culture, and it's not okay, and I don't want that for anyone in this room. We need to be people who look to Christ and his righteousness, know that it applies fully to us, that he not just lived the life that we could, couldn't, but he died the death that we should have, and then he rose from the grave defeating death on our behalf, all on our behalf, and it's all applied to us. We cheat the system. God puts his righteousness on us and looks at us as if it were him doing it. It's amazing. It's unique in all the the religions of the world. It's utterly unique. And I don't want you to miss that. I don't want you to look up one day at Jesus on the other side of this life and look at him and say something like, Lord, Lord. Did I not attend church every Sunday? Did I not stay in my marriage even though it was hard? Did I not share the gospel with my neighbors and raise good kids and read my Bible? And he will say to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I don't want any of us to hear that. I want us to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. I want us to be embraced Not shunned. You know what's interesting about um, my dog? uh, (laughs) There's a lot of things. One of them is that I don't have a dog anymore. Um, (laughs) I sold that dog on Craigslist to a guy named Brian. And uh, anybody who's a dog lover in the room hates me right now, but I did. I sold a dog on Craigslist. And maybe for you, you've thought that Christianity was this game of getting your act together, cleaning yourself up, making sure your, your pedigree is in line, letting God come over to you, kick the tires, check you out, and decide whether or not he wants to bring you home or not. And if that's your view of Christianity, you've utterly missed it. You've utterly missed it. That's moralism, and it's wicked, but it's not Christianity. Do you want to know what Christianity is? About two months from now, I'm going to be getting on a plane with my wife and we are flying to India. And then we're getting out of that plane and we're getting in a car and driving 12 hours inland to a little orphanage in the middle of nowhere to pick up a little one-year-old boy named Ben. And Ben was born about a year ago and dumped on the side of the street the day he was born, umbilical cord still attached 2.9 pounds. If the hospital nurses did not find him that day, he would absolutely be dead. In fact, it's a miracle that he's even alive right now. He has some special needs, so as soon as he gets home, he has to go under the knife and get some surgeries done, right? Ben contributes absolutely nothing to me and Kelly. He's not bringing anything to the table. There's nothing that looking at him, we would think, that's the one I want but we're going to pick him up because we have set our love on him and he's coming home. Not because of what he did, but because we are choosing to love him. That is the gospel that God in Christ has looked at all of us who are just as destitute, just as empty of anything good. And he says, yes to you, but not because of you, Because of me. Because I love you. Because I am giving you my righteousness. Come home with me. Be with me. Until you understand that that's that's Christianity, that that's the gospel, this whole thing isn't going to make sense to you and you'll always lean on your record. But look, look at the gospel and look at the truth of it and lean on him and let go of your resume so you can grab onto Christ. Let's pray. Father, we need you this morning. We really do. And you you who are hearing my voice right now, um, I I realize that for you, um, you may be in one of a couple camps this morning. One of those camps might be, this is brand new news. Like you really have thought that fundamentally Christianity is nothing more than any other religion. That it's a set of beliefs and values and mores. And if I obey these things, then maybe I'll wind up in heaven. If, and if not, I won't. And if that's you, right now is a great time to let go of your resume. And to realize that in the end, it is nothing. In fact, it's less than nothing. It's disgusting to God but that God is still with his arms out open to you, inviting you to come on the basis of another's resume. If that's you this morning, this is a great time for you to pray and ask God for that. Ask him to change you. Trust in Christ and his righteousness. Believe that his death was effective to cover your sin and that his life was effective to make you right before God. There's probably another group of people in this room and that's folks like me who, who have done the Christianity thing for a while, but we feel such a tug back to trusting in the things that we're bringing to the table instead of Christ. And, and we find ourselves constantly dancing between totally miserable because we can't keep our own set of laws or totally self-righteous and proud-hearted because we do feel like we're keeping them. But never humbly content and celebratory in Jesus. And if that's you, the same thing goes. Let go of your record and trust him. Trust that what he's bringing to the table is far better than what you're bringing to the table. Would you do that now? Ask God for that. And he promises to meet you in this moment and to give you Christ's righteousness so that you will be lovely before him. God, we do desperately need you. We need you to be for us all the things that we have tried to be and failed to be. God, would you produce in us a heart that says yes to you over and above us? We love you. we pray these things in Jesus' good name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.